late, Alex. We're already here. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so uh, just to start things off, we're having some technical issues here, and this is not being recorded, but we will have uh, the interview with Annie up in its entirety um, on our no, site. Well, like, it is... It, it, no. Okay. No. Uh, so this will all be out on the interwebs. Okay. We're live. It's on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and we'll be there in all of its glory. But for the sake of pulling individualized clips and things that Kristen does with uh, editing magic, gotcha. those things will not be available for this. But this stream in its entirety will be available in video and audio as per usual. Okay, well, fantastic. That's that's fine because the 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 guts of what we're showing here today is recorded properly, and so yes. uh, Kristen will be able to do all the clips and stuff that she needs to do. So cool. Problem. Yeah. Sorry, you guys. This just problem. it just adds to the the week that I'm having that I would of course forget to hit the button before I hit go live. But welcome everyone to Casa Live. Alex and I are here. Uh, and we're going to do the stuff and things. Alex had a, a, a great interview uh, yesterday with Annie. Is, it's Clay Camp? Correct. Is that how you say her last name? Okay. I just didn't want to get it wrong. Uh, with Annie, um, who is a researcher, you you know better her her background profession. Yeah. Uh, to Tobacco nicotine researcher, uh, tobacco nicotine science. And, okay. Uh, yeah, I didn't know if she had like a, a specific title. There's not really, um, but she's been doing this for almost 20 years, and you'll hear that again once we uh, play the interview. So cool. Um, so we have we have that. Yep. Uh, which we'll we'll put on shortly. Alex, you said it's, it's about it's about an hour. It's an hour. It's a cool. pretty solid hour, hour and maybe awesome. a couple minutes. And uh, so I haven't even seen it yet. So I'm excited to to see and hear this discussion along with everyone else. Thank you, Skip. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to go too into it, but if if Murphy's Law could consist of seven, like, ten straight days, that's the last ten days that I've had. If it could just, if that could be it, that's the last ten days that I've had. Um, but yes, welcome everybody. Addy, I see Skip is here. Adrian, lots of familiar faces. Earn in chat, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, and thank you, uh, Replay crew out there who's going to be tuning in later on. Appreciate you guys coming and joining us this week. Uh, also on the docket, Alex, you wanted to talk about a certain docu-series film thing coming out, uh, which uh, a good friend of ours, Helen Redman, wrote an article about already, uh, which I got the chance to read. But what is it? What is it called? <laughs> so uh, in case you all haven't heard, uh, there is going to be a Netflix docu-series called Big Vape. Uh, and uh, this is, I guess, the the documentary follow up to Jamie uh, Ducharme's book by the same title. Um, I think that, yeah, that's right. Um, and I'm looking over at my bookshelf, and I could barely read from this far away. Um, but uh, so anyway, uh, Helen Redman has a review of, I believe, the first episode on um, uh, on Filter, and I'll drop the link in the chat in case those of you who are here haven't read this and we'll put all of these links in the description for the re replay crew. Um, <clears throat> but definitely go check it out. It sounds like this is a, an actual kind of balanced take on uh, the, 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 the 
rise and fall of Juul. It's not really, Juul isn't fallen. They're still around. They're still applying to get products onto market. Um, but uh, the, of course, the title of her article is the Netflix docuseries flips the narrative on Juul. And some of the quotes you may have seen uh, flashing by you on Twitter sounds like um, there was pretty good representation uh, on both sides of this issue. And so uh, really looking forward to seeing this. It starts uh, this coming Wednesday, October 11th. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about it with uh, with Helen and some other guests. Uh, we're working out the details on that, but um, it is in the works. So um, definitely check out Helen's article. The link is in chat and it will be in the description. And, uh, and come Wednesday, uh, have you know, some people should do some viewing parties. Apparently this is going to be worth it. So um, looking forward to that. Yeah, I'll probably do like a, I'm not going to try to flaunt my own stuff here, but um, maybe I'll do like a Discord viewing party with a bunch of people. Something like that I think would be a lot of fun. Um, I did that with You Don't Know Nicotine when it came out and stuff. So that could be exciting. Get a bunch of people together and and watch. Uh, so if anybody's interested or whatever out there on the internet, maybe we can figure something out. Get a hold of me if you want to watch it. Hang out and, um, you know, whatever. That'd be That'd be kind of a cool thing. But I didn't read the book. I want to know if anybody here in chat has read the book, um, but I read the article and Helen really only had like kind of a couple nitpicky things. She mentioned like there's a couple things that came up that weren't uh, entirely factual or, or truthful or whatever. But yeah, again, for the most part, she seemed really positive about it. She said it was really balanced. Um, they got a lot of key points correct um, and didn't, you know, make at least in the first episode, didn't make Jewel to be the the giant evil monster that every, you know, other anti-vaping organization or whatever has painted them to be across media. So yeah. I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to finally uh, see maybe some form of positive vaping relating related media hit Netflix. At least, at least the truth, I think. Or at least something yeah. closer to the truth than we've it's seen. All so anybody, it's all any of us have been asking for is let's just yeah. have an honest conversation about this stuff. Um, so, yeah. Uh, one more thing before we start the interview, and I do want to get going here because we're already eating into a lot of time here. Um, uh, people should be aware of a, uh, a bill in Congress. This is H.R. 5715. Uh, the Tobacco Tax Equity Act of 2023. I still have not looked back over my notes to figure out whether or not this is um, the absurd taxation that we saw in previous attempts to get basically the same bill uh, through Congress. Um, Congress is in shambles right now, so I, I don't know that this has yeah. a very good <laughs> chance of, of getting through something. Worst case, it gets shoved into an omnibus budget bill, um, but we know from past experience that things get taken out. Um, it is a tax parity bill, uh, basically taxing all tobacco products at the same rate as cigarettes. In previous attempts, it turned out that vapor and other low risk forms of nicotine and tobacco were being charged more, way more than what you would see on cigarettes. So um, uh, I, I don't have any confidence that they've worked out the math on this. Um, and uh, this gives us an opportunity to communicate with lawmakers that, that this is a bad idea, uh, no matter what the success or failure rate is of, of a piece of legislation like this. So um, be on the lookout for that. Uh, I'll probably be putting something together next week. This is not like an emergency type of situation, but it's good to get people communicating with lawmakers. So um, yeah. we'll, we'll get on that. 
What was the uh, what was the bill number again? Uh, five seven one five. Five seven one five. So something yeah. to definitely H- keep our eyes. H- HR fifty seven fifteen. Fifty seven fifteen. Something to keep our eyes and ears on. And yeah, like you said, it's it's always just a good opportunity to reach out to lawmakers, speak to your representatives and whatnot. We don't have to wait till the last minute. You know, the house is on fire kind of situation to. Uh, voice our opinions and concerns with our policymakers. They represent us. That's their yeah. job. So, all right. Whenever, whenever you are ready, sir. Uh, I suppose, and whenever everybody else is ready, are you guys ready? All right. Too bad. We're going to play the video now. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Just go. Without further ado, uh, my interview with Annie Clay Camp. I will take us out and roll the footage. Tobacco and nicotine science for almost 20 years now. Okay, uh, so thanks for joining us. Uh, in case it wasn't already clear, this is a pre recorded CASA uh, live. So, CASA kind of live. And uh, our guest today is Annie Clay Camp, who has been with us before on Twitter Spaces, uh, been a, a great friend to CASA. Uh, and, and been helping uh, Danielle and I out uh, working on our own article uh, as a trio. And uh, hopefully hopefully we'll get that somewhere soon. Um, but for those of you who don't know Annie, uh, she has been involved in uh, researching tobacco policy and tobacco products, uh, tobacco and nicotine science for almost 20 years now. Uh, I met Annie when she was working for Pinion Associates. Um, who has consulted for Reynolds and consulted for Jewel, still and currently consulting for Jewel. Uh, Annie has since uh, moved on to bigger and brighter things uh, and is currently working at the University of Maryland. And we'll get right into this soon here, but I'm going to bring Annie on. There you are. Hi. Good. <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to to talk with me on uh, on a Friday afternoon. Uh, we'll we'll tear down the illusion that this is happening on a Saturday, <laughs> right off the bat. Um, and so, um, uh, the 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 topic for today is uh, older people who smoke and people being left behind, perhaps uh, from uh, uh, the the looming menthol ban that we keep hearing about from FDA. So uh, to kind of set the table, let's let's talk about older people who smoke. Who are older people who smoke, uh, and 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 what? Uh, wh- why are we so concerned about this? Yeah. So we know that about it's it's ranged between eight to ten percent of the U.S. population um, are are currently smoking who are sixty five years and older. So eight to ten percent. It's stayed between that range for twenty years. They're the only age group that's seen no reduction in smoking prevalence. Um, we know that there's also in studies looking at nationwide cessation interventions, tobacco control. Older adults are not showing any changes in cessation. So part of the reason maybe people keep smoking into older age is because, you know, they're not able to stop at the same rate as other groups. And there's a variety of reasons that that could be causing. I would say the literature is really limited on this age group. Um, Historically, including myself, when I was first studying tobacco around 2003, um, we would exclude adults if they were 65 and above and smoked. And that was 
I think because those individuals often had more comorbidities, it was more complex, and it was a bias in general in biomedical research. Since then, NIH now requires if you do submit grant, you have to include older adults. This was something that was implemented just like two years ago. Um, and if you don't, you have to provide a rationale. So hopefully it's changing, but we're still really limited in what we know. So I'm I'm sort of curious about about the rationales. I, I mean, have you been able to to see? Would you be able to see anything that that researchers are doing in terms of uh, saying why we don't want to look at this older population? Yeah, I mean, I would from my own experience, I think it was just um, neglect and probably ageism, and also an assumption that older adults who smoke, um, you know, they've been doing it that it's a the whole other ball game. They've been doing it usually 40, 50 years. I wasn't conscious of that bias. Um, I think that in broad, more broadly in substance use research, there's also this complaint that we've excluded older adults. I um, hasn't been tested, but towards prevention um, in tobacco. And when we talk about cessation, that's like abstinence, right? It's a very abstinence focused. So if you get individuals that have tried quitting, maybe they're not interested in quitting, uh, survey data, NISDA data for the US suggests older adults are the least likely to report wanting to quit smoking. So again, this is 65 and above. Um, you know, it's, it's just this idea of like, damage is done, move on. And with this focus on prevention, and I think not tobacco harm reduction, it, it's really caused this gap in this forgotten population that is growing because of the older adult population growing. And um, yeah, people just persisting to smoke into older age, which I think is probably due to a variety of reasons that are important. Yeah, just from my own experience in treatment for substance use disorder, I know I, I was in, you know, groups with older adults who, uh, you know, are, are, now, are now in early recovery. Uh, these are folks in their, you know, mid to late 60s. And uh, I do remember one person sharing that, you know, one of their barriers to seeking treatment was they're sort of at the end of their life anyway. And so why bother? Um, which I, I think is, is sort of, it's kind of an unfortunate mindset to go into this because, you know, we all have loved ones who are 65 years and older, and uh, they've certainly got a lot of life left and a lot to contribute and a lot to experience. And, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, having to sift through all of that just to have, you know, enjoy the golden years of life uh, is, 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 I don't know, it, it's pretty, pretty sad and pretty disappointing that people, I think, feel almost kind of resigned to that. Um, and, and a lot of other, you know, outside sources, I think, are kind of have have a role to play in people developing that point of view, but uh, to get a, maybe a little bit more granular here. So when we're talking about older adults, uh, how does smoking kind of uh, we have other subpopulations within this older adult population, mm -hmm. and so the smoking prevalence among all of these other subgroups does that mirror the 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 rest of the population, or um, are there other sig significant differences? So I think there's significant differences based on race and SES. So what you see is um, there's been a couple recent papers out. I'm happy to share, you know, at the end of this, if anybody wants certain citations I mentioned, showing that low and persistent SES, so socioeconomic status, so that would be, say, uh, an education level below high school combined with 
um, making, say, $15,000 or less a year, that's an example, those individuals are more likely to smoke into older age. Also, smoking among older adults is much more common, and this has been the case since um, data were first collected in 1964 on smoking right after the Surgeon General's report, much more common among older Black males, non-Hispanic, than older white males. And that there's been about a mean difference between those two groups in smoking prevalence of 8%, which is since 1964, right? So we're over 50 years. I can't imagine the burden of death and disease. Older black adults are more likely to die from smoking related disease. They're less likely to stop in controlled studies. And we know that interestingly, um, black non-Hispanic young adult, they start smoking later than say um, their age cohort that are white adults, but smoke longer. So I would say there's important race and SES disparities. And I recently presented some data on this using PATH data at SRNT earlier this year. And what we found too, is that if you're just looking at adults, we had to do 55 and over because the PATH data oversamples young adults and it's very underrepresentative of older. This is a commentary I wanna write, another reason we don't know. But anyway, 55 and over and we compared if you were smoking, your harm perceptions, if you were an older Caucasian white adult or older black African-American adult, non-Hispanic, and thinking that e-cigarettes were equally or more harmful was significantly more likely if you were not white and if you had a low SES and your interest in switching to an e-cigarette was less likely. So I think there's really important differences that may mirror some some younger groups, but I think it's a distinct population of older adults with unique reasons for continuing to use nicotine in different forms. Yeah, I, as as we as we go on through this conversation about nicotine, we're certainly you know at least among harm reduction circles, not not the broad public health community, but uh, acknowledging there are benefits and there is utility to nicotine, and and certainly as we get older, we get we get tired. Uh, mm -hmm. and board. And so there are things that uh, can help us on that journey and, and turn things around. So uh, certainly no begrudging people for continuing to use something that at least they perceive uh, mm -hmm. improves their lives. I would just love for people to be able to have access to safer products. Um, so um, I know that you have some slides to show and there's some great visual representations of, of the, the numbers that you're talking about. Um, and one of the really important points that has been weirdly celebrated in the past like couple months, I think, uh, is the reports that smoking prevalence among youth is at record lows. Um, and so I, I thought one of the most shocking things to see was I think it was for the past two years, um, uh, smoking prevalence among young people uh, since 2020 uh, is lower than older adults. And we're looking mm -hmm. by lower, we're talking about 5.3% among younger, young adults, 18 to 24. Mm -hmm. I know there's some hubbub about that designation yeah. as young, young adults, um, and, uh, versus 8.3% among older adults. Um, so I, I, I feel like I can intuitively figure out why that's significant, but maybe you could explain what is so significant about the youth population being so much lower than than older adults? Yeah, um, and an inner. So I think importantly, 
I think, you know, in the past, there's just been this term hardcore smoker. And I know the smoker calling someone a smoker, we don't want to do that. But, you know, all this discussion in, say, 20 years ago, and um, some people like Stan Glantz have suggested that there's no such thing. But the concept to me aligns with being someone that continues to use nicotine, whether it's through cigarette, vaping, NRT, into older age. There's certain people that want it that need it for whatever reason, if you want to get into argue about benefits or not. I mean, I wrote a meta-analysis published it a decade ago on nicotine's benefits on cognition. It's a real thing if you have cognitive aging. So I think there's that part where it's showing that there's a persistence of use of this product, this nicotine, whatever it's in. And there is a reduction um, of smoking in young adults, which there's a lot of debate. I think it is. It looks closely tied to e-cigarettes. Um, but I think it highlights, too, the intersection of all of this with our aging general population. So for the first time ever in the year 2030, adult, older adults will outnumber children, people under the age of 18. So you're not only getting a large drop in the, the young people smoking, you're, you're getting no change for older adults, but more and more of us living longer lives, which is the goal, right? But if you're living in a longer life, smoking a cigarette, and according to my estimates, it's like 3 million more older adults who smoke in the US, extrapolating to the latest census data, than there are 18 to 24 year olds who smoke. So this is people in the, the prime of when uh, smoking related disease starts to hit, right? Like cancer diagnoses, lung cancer around 65. So to me, there's so much built into that. There's the growing older adult population, then there's the healthcare utilization of that group. So if we just want to think about people in numbers and not as humans, well, that's a huge argument for reducing harm. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's a huge, um, disparity, right? In the number of people who use one of the most deadly consumer products in the earth, on earth, and they're older, no one's talking about it. it. It's, it's just, it's not highlighted. And when I do highlight it, um, you know, people hear me, they're surprised, but I think that there's just this impulse to feel more um, care or compassion or interest in the younger groups. So now the, it, to me, the shift is, okay, e-cigarettes are the harm in young people and totally forgetting all these individuals that are still smoking. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but that's what I see in these older adult statistics. Yeah. And I, I think we touched on this before, you know, when we talk about the, the focus on youth, you know, one of the things that we've heard a lot recently is if you can quit smoking before you turn 40, uh, your chances mm -hmm. of making a full recovery, for lack of a better phrase, um, are are significantly greater. It's possible for you to your body to completely recover from from smoking. Um, and so I, it was kind of what we had talked about before the damage is sort of done. Mm -hmm. So there's really no I, I try to I tend and I think a lot of people I, I tend to put this in, in return on investment terms that you know, the money spent on prevention is far more, uh, there's there's more return on that than say, trying to convince somebody who's 45 to switch essentially mm -hmm. brands of nicotine mm -hmm. uh, or switch right. to a, a safer device. Um, 
And, and I guess, you know, it, it, it takes a little bit more effort to convince people, especially after 10 years of mm. the public being told that these products are so dangerous. Um, yep. So I, I, I think it just to maybe that adds some color. I, I, I don't know the accuracy. I can't really get into the heads of, of the people, you know, turning the wheels at, at tobacco control organizations. Mm -hmm. um, but that does seem to be a bit of a, um, uh, it, it's almost like older folks are sort of getting sold out because it's just, it seems too expensive. The, the, the quit or die uh, approach doesn't really work for them. Yes. And two things to add to this at the e-cigarette summit, I attended virtually the one in the US earlier this year. I was able to ask the first question to Brian King. And it was, you're talking about health disparities. You're talking about health equity as a focus. Older adults in the US have not had a change in smoking prevalence. I mean, it was all written out. And the person that read it, I think it was Tom Glenn, like he wasn't able to read it all. But what Brian King said, my question was, why isn't this a priority population? And he said, well, we got to follow the science. We need more science. But that is challenging when this, the national level surveys that are being funded and developed do not actually account for, they're not sensitive to older adults. It's a huge problem. We have to define aging as like 55 and above, which doesn't match developmental knowledge of cognition and older adult development. The other thing I want to mention for anyone watching that like knows someone that's smoking as an older adult, you are entering that or you are, there are hard data, great data to suggest any time in your life, even in your 80s, if you stop, you can add time to your life. Now, for me, the bigger question is I want quality time to my life and other people, right? It's not just living. And that's where it really harm reduction and nicotine as a, a pleasurable thing as a, a you know is really important to me when i talk about older adults who smoke it's not just you don't want to just talk about cessation in that context but i want to give motivation to people like switching and of course we don't have long-term studies we barely have studies on older adults and e-cigarettes less than one percent of older adults in the u.s uses e-cigarettes according to national survey but um, if, if you really extrapolate the biological plausibility of how e-cigarettes don't have carbon monoxide, they don't have all these carcinogens, and you're switching to that. You know, uh, Ricardo Peloso has data on COPD symptoms and all that. I really do think, yeah, there is, if you're in that spot and you haven't switched, switching to non-combustible products could, could add a lot to an older person's life. Yeah. So, and, and, and quality of life is, yeah. is, is that's the, that's the key word there, I think. And, and certainly we've heard, I've talked to I have friends who, uh, you know, they quit smoking and switched to vaping and, and COPD went away. Uh, and, and so, you know, I know that there are certainly people who have had it very long term and, and, uh, you know, the damage, some of the mm -hmm. damage is irreparable, but one way or another, I, I think a lot of people, uh, experience health benefits, it's certainly to the extent that you can now enjoy the rest of your life uh, yeah. without having to lug around an oxygen tank or go to you know doctor's visits every month or week um, mm -hmm. or, or spend a lot of money on expensive prescription medication. So yeah, <laughs> just sort of teed up a, a potential conversation by everybody's conflicts of interest in the industry and markets. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> but not for today. Uh, so um, so I, I, I think um, you know, the, 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 the catch here is, 
you know, again, with 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 older people not being represented in surveys and um, uh, maybe maybe they're overrepresented in policymaking. Uh, but uh, the the we're on the steps of uh, a menthol ban being implemented. And so, um, I, you know, I whenever I think about the menthol ban, you're all to point out illicit markets. The illicit mm-hmm. market is already here. Uh, I live in New York State, of course, where uh, more than half the cigarettes, I think that ticked down a little bit, it might be below half, um, but around half the cigarettes sold in the state of New York are on the the, the illicit or the gray market. Wow. Um, and, and gray market actually covers things like, you know, tribal land. Uh, so it, it's, it, it's a little kind of wishy-washy, but, you know, New York certainly has a, a long, well-established history of organized crime. Um, and, mm. and we're dealing with, with all kinds of issues with, with green lighting cannabis. Um, there's still a, a robust illicit market here because the regulations are slow to, to, to roll out and, and we're dealing with lawsuits and all this other stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, it should not be a surprise to anybody that that organized crime will step in and sort of fill the vacuum from, you know, that left by otherwise regulated retailers. Um, but specific to this population, and, and the first thing that pops to mind is, you know, younger people are more prone to taking risks. They, I would assume that mm-hmm. younger people are more inclined to buy uh, vape or, or, or cigarettes out of the, the back of a Cadillac in a Walmart parking lot. Um, versus older people, but so is there? What what's what's really what's what are the risks here to this population of older people who smoke um, in in the wake of a menthol ban? Yeah, um, well, I would say you know I've been trying to sift through the menthol literature and a lot of the studies the FDA cites to understand how much of these are actually accounting for older adults, mm-hmm. and I will say it's very few. Um, a lot of them focus on youth or they don't include older adults if these are controlled studies. And I'll show a couple of slides to just make sure I, I'm like clear on how I sort of describe what I think could be the issue. Um, let's see. So I already talked about the background. Okay. So let me just show, I sort of did an analysis, like a policy analysis of um, one of the modeling studies. Let's see here. Window. All right, let's see, can you see that? Yep. Okay, great. Just added it to the screen, there we go. Nice, okay. So what I did is I I found, so this study, the Levy 2021, it's a simulation study of what would happen with a menthol ban. So I'll just walk you all through that. And then what I did is use what they said and analyze what I know about older adults and sort of predicted what could happen. So. Like in in the according to my best interpretation of the FDA's intentions and the simulation study. So the idea with a ban would be reduce um, smoking prevalence. So less initiation, more cessation. And of course, menthol use is correlated with race in America. So there are important race disparities. So if you could reduce smoking, Um, things like that, you know, that could have a lot of important outcomes. The simulation study suggested that there'd be a 15% decline in smoking if a ban went into effect. However, in that model, it included um, alternative non-combustible products, e-cigarettes. So it assumed that those were available. 
Um, and what you would assume if you've been smoking, like most older adults in my research have been for 40 to 50, sometimes 60 years, that it might be hard to completely stop. And you might want to switch if you've been smoking menthol that whole time to a menthol e-cigarette. So I think that's important to consider. Um, but hopefully a ban would reduce death and disease. And actually, now, can I, can I, can yeah, I jump yeah. in with a quick question just to clarify uh, in, in the study, did they, uh, take the, um, the, the sort of 2017 FDA plan, uh, which stated that, you know, perhaps menthol e-cigarettes needed to be available? Are, are they assuming that me specifically menthol e-cigarettes would be available or just any e-cigarette? My understanding was any e-cigarette, okay. but I could have not read it close enough when I did this analysis. So I can look into that, like if they were looking at it, um, and maybe they did base it on that, but there was not like the assumption here. If, if my understanding was a ban on menthol and combustible products, okay. not in e-cigarettes. Although, as we know, a PMTA hasn't been granted for menthol e-cigarettes, which is a, a thing we can talk about. Um, okay, so then unintended, and I, I, I think a lot of this is known. We already talked about illicit use. And these are modeled in this simulation study, switching, switching to non-menthol smoking. I mean, that would not, you know, that's not going to help someone's health or consumers, you know, adding their own menthol, which is honestly something I'd probably want to do if I were switching, having to stop. Now, um, in the simulation study outcomes, uh, you know, there were these four outcomes, right? Quit smoking, switch to reduced harm products. And they, they mentioned e-cigarettes a lot in this simulation study switch but we know right there's lots of other alternative snooze um i think there's growing numbers of different you know, heat not burn even though they're not in the us right now um not switch to non-menthol and switch to illicit menthol so the the one thing i want to show is they they modeled this for people up to 30 years of age and then over 30 and they did this this paper because they suggested that there's a critical difference in this whole idea that you were mentioning you know if People are initiating as young people, whether or if they've already been smoking. So we can get into whether that was a good decision. What they found is the pattern was different. So the dark blue is up to 30 years. So switching to non-menthol smoking was more likely if you were older. And of course, simulation studies are based on existing data. So sort of suggesting, you know, increased harm more likely if older, about similar here, but you have more people who are younger under up to 30 that are quitting or switching to reduced harm products. So like what I'm seeing first off here is not specific to older adults, but this age differential in the benefits or risks of a menthol ban. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what about so what I'm doing here is breaking it down. All right. What, why do I think quitting smoking, switching, to reduce harm products is less likely to older adults. These are a bunch of just like sound bites and then I'll, I'll get off this screen and, or we can talk about it, but basically quit rates have stalled for older adults. So like the idea that they would suddenly quit smoking when you ban a product for me is unlikely. We've been unable to budge this. And this is in Europe too. There was a, a, a big analysis of data. I wrote a commentary on a couple years ago on all the tobacco control policies. So, you know, um, non-smoke, like no smoking indoors in addition to access to NRT and older adults were the only age group that showed no shift in cessation. So these traditional quote unquote tobacco control policies separate from harm reduction were not impacting this age group. Um, we know black older adults are less likely to stop smoking. They're also more likely to smoke menthol cigarettes 
about 40% of older adults, 55 and over, smoke menthol cigarettes. So that's according to some data I've seen. Older, I've mentioned this, older adults report less interest in quitting. But you also have this whole thing where older adults are already not using e-cigarettes. So less than 1% in the U.S. There's more misconceptions. This is that presentation I, get, I gave earlier this year. And they have less accurate information. So maybe they won't even think switching is a good idea. And then lastly, I think that it would be more likely Adult, older adults to switch to non-menthol combustible or do illicit menthol use. And this is the reason why. So I know older adults, they've smoked longer. We have data to suggest they're heavier daily smokers, growing data to suggest, and this is um, not always consistent, but a higher level of nicotine dependence than younger cohorts. Um, so that suggests to me that it would be really hard for them to not continue to use combustible tobacco products where they would need a product that really modeled the nicotine delivery, the pace, the cues, which e-cigarettes can do. Um, and then lastly, I just think with older adults, we're often talking about um, constrained finances. We know that older adults who smoke um, are more likely to be low in persistent SES, so they have less financial resources. And, you know, if a cigarette is still less, these are some data I found on cost, less than an e-cigarette, then why would an older adult spend, you know, this income that they have very limited on that? So that is um, sort of like my breakdown. I know I was talking a lot, so feel free to let me know what you think, holes in the argument, but none of these things have been tested because we're not actually looking at menthol, the ban in older adults. Yeah, and so I, I mean, the, well, obvious questions aside, first, I, this is all, this all seems very consistent with the study that I had seen out of Canada. Um, and I'm certainly not approaching this with the same amount of diligence that you are, but this was something that came out, I think it was nine months after the implementation of or looking at nine months following the implementation of the menthol ban in Canada, and the numbers are very similar. 60% of people just continued smoking. They just switched to something non-menthol flavored. Uh, and then you had the remaining 40% kind of split down the middle, 20, 19 to 20% going to illicit sources and the remaining 20 uh, quitting. But again, this is only nine months and we know that quit rates decline after a year. Um, yeah. And so we, that number is likely to come down, you know, if it's on par with anything that we know, we hear about NRT, you know, three to 5%, probably that's, that's the number of people who mm. will quit as a result of this policy. And so, and I, I, I don't think, I, I don't know that I have a question here. It seems that like you've pretty, pretty well explained it is that, you know, the, one of the issues that we all talk about is. Uh, you know, when talking about new new rules or regulations or, or, or strategies or interventions, it's all seemingly geared toward youth and youth use is weighted heavier than adult use. And so getting a proper read on how overall beneficial something like a menthol ban may be, it, it's, it, it's impossible until we start balancing out how things are weighted and actually accounting for older adults who smoke and what their quality of life is going to be like after after such a policy. Right. 
Yeah, and and um, I had mentioned this earlier, but not yet on the recording. But I'm, you know, I say that a lot. There's a there's a focus on youth, you know, but I need evidence, you know. So we are going through all SR, the abstracts for the Society of Research on Nicotine Tobacco over the past five years. We've scored them. We have preliminary data from the past two. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I would say the proportion that look at young adults only. So this we define that as young adults or children like less than 20 age 24 is 80 percent so we're getting you know minimal you know and this is in studies that are doing age-focused analyses which is really important right because if you're just putting everyone in one bucket that's the same thing as ignoring race or economic disparities or even things like mental health or addiction which we know intersect with smoking so yeah, I think I've got to build more of a case through evidence on this. Um, but I feel I, that's what I sense that I'm seeing is a, a, a bias, honestly, towards younger people. But it's not just nicotine tobacco field. This is a lot of biomedical research. And, you know, we could get into the bigger picture of aging. You know, it's it's a hard thing. I'm 45 aging, you know, and um, it's complex and it's, you know, maybe you feel more hopeful if you can prevent someone from doing something bad. I don't know what that bad thing is, um, but I, I'm i honestly feeling a, a little over all of the prevention talk. Um, I get we need that, but I would say I'm hyper-focusing on middle age and older adults because of this reason. Yeah, and and just from you know my own personal account, I, I uh, one of the things that I I like hearing about is is people who are looking into specific to this issue, folks who switch from smoking to vaping and uh, see that that improvement in their health, and then take other steps like now now that I've quit smoking, yeah. maybe I can fix my diet, maybe I can start you know exercising or doing something like that, and and that's been I'm 47, so you know for the first time in my life, probably it sort of as we went through the pandemic, I started getting, well, relative to me, serious about things like I, I have a, a morning exercise routine. Mm. It's just, it's low impact yoga and some other stuff. But, you know, um, it, it's been this process. It's for me, it's been 17 years. I got sober in 2006. And so since then, it's been like each one of those hurdles, substance use disorder and then smoking, uh, you know, other, you know, mental, emotional stuff going on. Each time I kind of get over that hurdle, it's like, oh, you know, that wasn't that wasn't so hard. Maybe I can do the next thing. And 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 I and that that has a lot of value, especially for, you know, parents and grandparents and teachers mm. and all of the older people who have so much wisdom and experience to impart on the younger generations. I, I don't think that it's fair to, you know, dismiss the, you know, our, our, our advanced age <laughs> and, right. as, as a bad thing. Um, so, um, so yeah, sorry, I went off on my on little tangent. There. <laughs> I hear that. No. And also, I mean, we're, we're spending a lot of money in the U S I mean, I don't, think our healthcare system is doing it wisely, but you know, nonetheless, to live long lives, including people who smoke. And so that's another research idea. I really believe that people who are smoker are living longer as they should, because hopefully we've developed, you know, interventions, even just lung cancer screening. If like, do it 
we're not attending to not just right your smoking behavior, but I love that I, what you're talking about. I've heard it just talking to people who have say switched to e-cigarettes and f- like after all this time, they like switched and it was amazing in, in terms of self-efficacy. And I don't know what the terms are in research, but I'd love to learn more about it because I feel that too, like this past month, I did like a sober October, soberish and drank less. And that translated to other health behaviors that I was struggling to do, like get up and exercise, eat, not snacking at night. And it, it just, you know, it's like this chain effect and that sense of confidence and accomplishment. To me, that's even better, right? Than reducing carbon monoxide. That's that's life-changing. Yeah, that's a, and, and, and what a great way to end our days feeling like we've done the things that we want to do and we feel good. And, you know, that's it. Yeah, we, we as a society, I, or as a species generally, I think need to have better conversations about end of life goals yes. and care and, and everything about it. Um, so yeah, and a big and this is awkward people, I think another reason, you know, people don't talk about drugs, alcohol, nicotine with older adults is pleasure the pleasure component. So we don't like to think about older adults. I, I, you know, there's this new um, bachelor out that he's an older man and like people are complaining that there's kissing on the show between older adults, you know, and I, I don't know what that is. We need an aging researcher to talk about these biases. But the truth, we all need pleasure. Like I just don't, that's never going to go away. It's ingrained in the human brain and it, your whole life. It doesn't just, you don't, people suggest that you just age out of substance use or sex or gambling. It's like, absolutely not. And all the signals, by the way, for other substances are exponential increase in use among older adults. So opioid overdose rates, first time treatment seeking for opioid use disorder, alcohol, binge drinking, and cannabis. And so what that tells me is people are looking for pleasure or at least maybe a reduction from suffering. So say you have chronic pain and you're, you're smoking more cannabis or eating it. Um, anyway, that's a long way of saying like, I think that's another big part of where I want to go with this research is the the component of pleasure and why that's so important when you develop harm reduction products for nicotine or the other drugs like methadone, that's a harm reduction tool is like people deserve that. It's really hard to go cold turkey. And also at the end of the day, you might be like feeling virtuous that you didn't smoke or drink or whatever negative thing you want to stop. Then you're just, you know, maybe you're in a horrible mood, right? And so there's a way to do that a little safer. I mean, I know this is the whole point of what we're talking about, right? But I I think even talking about that with older adults and, and pleasure is overlooked. Yeah. And I, I think you kind of opened up the door here for another thing that, that I, another point I, I like to make. And, and also, I think incorporating some of the comments Clyde Bates has been making over the past year or two, um, this idea of um, uh, pent up latent demand for, for nicotine. And uh, a lot of this conversation, you, you know, the, the, the anti-groups that we, we encounter all the time, don't want to give any kind of acknowledgement to people use drugs for reasons, um, reasons other than they were duped by clever marketing. Um, mm-hmm. But it, I, I'm, I sort of have this thing in my head, you know, as we're seeing smoking prevalence come down, youth vaping is going up and or, or went up uh, and it, we, we had it pulled back during the pandemic and it's risen a little bit. 
we're still, I think, pre-17 levels of youth vaping right now. Um, pre, did I say pre-2017? Pre-2017 levels. Um, but, you know, from what I understand, what I've read about substance use, uh, and Dr. Carl Hart is, is the person I go to uh, for this, uh, Carl Hart and Stanton Peel, um, okay. both uh, seem to have dedicated their lives to, to studying substance use and substance use disorder and treatment and so on. Um, you know, some of the points that they make just before I get to the, the real nugget here is, first of all, more than 75% of people who use drugs don't exhibit behavior that would be considered problematic use. Mm -hmm. uh, that means most people, you don't even really know. These are people who are running perhaps Fortune 500 companies. They could be a school administrator. They could be running your local government. I don't know. And they just don't, there is no problem. They are able to manage or, or enjoy a particular drug, even if it's heroin, uh, in a way that does not disrupt their life or put them at risk or other people around them. If there is any risk, they are the only ones experiencing it. And that's their choice as, an, as a free adult. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that use prevalence uh, of, across all drugs is somewhere between, uh, I know it is as 15 to 20% of the population. Um, I think Carl Hart had, had noted um, uh, around 11% of the adult population were using you know, drugs. Um, I think if you factored in nicotine, that probably bumps up a little bit. But um, it, I, I guess in, in, from your view, and, or if this is even something that is particularly in your wheelhouse, is you know, do do you foresee a time where nicotine use kind of falls in line with all other drugs, and we start to see? I hate to say normalize normalization. Um, I, I, maybe the correct mathematical term is like reversion to the mean here. Um, but it is, is, is this 11, 15, 20% of people using nicotine is, is kind of helping the rest of society be comfortable with that? Is it, is that a, a laudable goal? Is that something that we need to do? I mean, this number change, this number doesn't really change regardless of what the policies are. Um, and so uh, it, is, mm -hmm. is it possible to get to a point where we can say, okay, look, no matter what we do, this percentage of people are going to use any one of these drugs. And it, overall, it's, it's not as bad as, it's, as it sounds on the six o'clock news. So can we just start having a conversation about making sure that these folks know what they're doing and have access to safer products? I don't know. I don't even know if that's a question. <laughs> right. No, I hear you. And I... I do. I mean, I am of the camp that I think that there is a certain baseline level of people that are just always going to use substances um, for a variety of reasons. Some of them, it, it feels medicinal. Some of them, they just like to, I don't know, right? Take the edge off or go on a bender. And I, you know, I currently, my my position is at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in um, their division on addiction research and treatment. I don't work, I'm sort of the lone tobacco person. So I'm trying to bring that into everything, but they are steeped in that world. I mean, they're, they're the clinic I go to once a week is in West Baltimore. It's been there like 40 years. It's mainly methadone. It's walk up community based, low threshold. And their whole philosophy is what you're talking about. People are going to use opioids, try to prevent them from using them with, you know, adulterants like xylazine. How do you do that? 
you don't shame them. You don't like act like they're stupid if they get an infection because of adulterants. You just educate them and try to make them see like better options. But at the end of the day, the doors open the next morning at 6 a.m. whenever they want to come back. And of course, right, like, if, you know, if you're going to do things that are illegal, like bring a gun, I mean, there's some restrictions, but very low threshold, right? And so I think, why can't that mentality be? But, you know, I grew up in eastern Kentucky. It was a dry county for most of my life. Um, there's a long history where prohibition came in, at least with that area that I know about, and the religion and the even broader than that, right? Like the moral values just yeah and this need i think to police people and stigmatize them um you know it's i don't know if that'll go away either that seems to be a core part of the human brain but certainly we can make policies that are more aligned with what i think is helpful to people which is compassion you know it best evidence and also hearing them what do they want if they want to quit smoking let's keep investing all this money in, but I would like as much money in harm reduction, right? Or even educating providers on all this because, you know, a lot of providers don't even understand nicotine isn't a direct cause of cancer, which, you know, that's a whole other topic. But I don't know if I answered a question or made up my own, but yeah, I hear what you're saying and I agree with it. And I, I wonder in 30 years, so I'll be 75 if I live there, I'll be an older adult officially. What will I see? You know, what will older adults be using? I mean, the way I view it, which a lot of people that I know in, not a lot, I think it's a minority now, but they, they're very angry at me that I would suggest it'd be a good thing for an older adult to be aging with e-cigarettes. But I think that's becoming more and more of a minority. But that's what, if you were going to be smoking at age 50, how great if you were able to switch for 30 years, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I think that demand for nicotine, that desire for it is persistent for some people, no matter what. I think it bears out in older adults continuing to smoke despite horribly painful cancers, horribly painful COPD, because there's something about that nicotine. I think, yeah, sure, it's an addictive product, but bigger than that, right? And social aspects, cognitive aspects of using it and also just it's not an intoxicating substance like alcohol or opioids right so if it's the one thing at the end of the day or the first maybe you limit yourself to two cigarettes a day that just you know helps you get through that like how could you argue with that right even if we know it's a dangerous product just like binge drinking or something yeah yeah and i i uh keyed off on a couple of notes. I, I think, you know, the, the, the amount of investment into harm reduction, uh, certainly there needs to be more, I think, especially in terms of research, but implementing harm reduction strategies, mm. I think is relatively cheap by comparison. Uh, and yeah. if, 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 if any, if anybody has made that point crystal clear, first of all, it's definitely a lot of stuff happening in the drug harm reduction space. You just have community members getting together and trying to navigate the laws, even where they can't navigate the laws, they will establish harm reduction centers. Uh, and these are people who come from a community of people who use injection drugs and they know, they know what their peers need and they, they work to, to meet their needs where they're at. Um, but mm -hmm. also in vaping was, you know, this was a, a consumer revolt where we just decided we didn't want to buy the cigarettes anymore. And we went to our local vape shop 
who was, uh, of course, you know, they went through the same thing. They quit smoking by switching to vaping and wanted to, you know, they made a business out of it and they supported their community uh, by helping people improve their health. Uh, and there were no government subsidies for that. No tax money was spent on opening up vape shops. Uh, people would be, I, I think, gasping in horror if tax money had been spent on something like a vape shop. Mm -hmm. uh, but all of this was done, uh, you know, in, through the marketplace. Uh, and and really anything that anybody's been asking for ever since is, is please just get out of the way so we can continue helping our friends. Um, so, uh, yeah, obviously some advantages there. Uh, harm reduction versus the same old, same old, and the same old, same old sounds very, you know, Old Testament kind of evolutionary remnant, right? I mean, at some point mm -hmm. in humans history, I'm sure it was advantageous to the community to shun people with diseases, communicable diseases or, or whatever. We see this in the animal kingdom. But uh, I, I like to think that in 2023, humans have evolved to the point where <laughs> You know, we can we can really dig into a rising tide raises all ships uh, and or if it doesn't sink coastal cities first. Um, but <laughs> um, yeah, you know, um, so we, we can make that happen now. And and I, 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 I just I, I'm hopeful. Uh, I don't know what 2050 is going to look like either um, or if I'm even going to make it to 2050. But uh, it's, <laughs> right. it's coming in like a like a lion. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, related to that, there's a lot of growing research, of course, around stigma. We know that smoking is very stigmatized, that tobacco control policies have pushed that higher, you know, sort of like uh, smokers are forbidden areas, right? There's shame. We also know that intersects with age. So the idea that you're still smoking, even in the face of serious disease, there, and I would love to do more research on this, very little, but that's so stigmatizing. Why would you even ask for help stopping smoking, right? I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to mention that to my doctor. And if if I did and they just came back with varenicline or NRT that I've already tried a billion times or don't want to try, like it would just, nah, not hearing it. So I, yeah, and I think with the stigma way to fight that harm reduction directly aligns with that. It's meeting the person where they're at, having a conversation. And one more thing to add to this that I've learned recently is like, if you go on and study geriatric medicine, core components of that. So this would be medicine directed at older adults, core components of that are harm reduction. Because what you're going to get are older adults. They've got a lifetime of harms to their body, falling, getting concussions. I mean, all the things you do to your body, right? So you're not getting someone as a geriatrician that's perfectly formed, healthy. You're getting someone with lots of comorbidities and just judging them for that. Or And so there's this paper. It's not about tobacco harm reduction. It's by a really great researcher. His name's Ben Hahn, H-A-N. I've done a couple symposium with him. He's on older doctor. And he says, it is so natural to combine harm reduction with any substance type and aging, because that's the way we're already practicing it. But I don't feel like there's many older adult specialists that are thinking about this with substance use. So anyway, that's just something to add another push for how harm reduction, tobacco harm reduction aligns really closely with how we should be caring for people in medicine. Yeah. 
Um, well, so we're we're coming up on the end of our hour here, and I promise to give you back as much time as I can. I know okay. you're very busy, um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, time for final thoughts. And and usually there's always a good a good opportunity for a call to action. But I'm not quite sure if there is one here. What can people watching do? Is this is is this shift that we're talking about? Is this something that has to come internally from research and medicine? Or do we as patients and consumers have a role to play here? So, yeah, I think any volume, any loudness we can give to the topic of not just older adults. I mean, that happens to be where I talk a lot, but it's aging alongside tobacco use and the importance of like, people don't just fall off a cliff in their middle age. Like this is a critically important population. So I think anecdotal evidence, you all are doing a great job. You're out there. I can do a better job of standing up when, say, a menthol ban is announced in Maryland and talking publishing things. Um, and I think that what I keep hearing from FDA is more science, more science. Now, whether or not that's reality is like, I just, I keep having to build the argument and, and put the word out like this so that everyone's taken into account when we're making huge policy decisions that really do impact a lot of people and not just doing that because we happen to have a hyper-focus on young people and we have advocacy groups like Parents Against Vaping, you know, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. There's no collaborating group because all's the closest to advocate for say grandparents for vaping or whatnot. So yeah, that's a really vague answer. I think just being able to speak with you today is awesome. I need to do more of this and I just need to put my head down and stay focused on this goal of highlighting you know, middle-aged and older adults and tobacco harm reduction um, and see what happens. But hopefully people can see the logic in this. I think it's a logical argument and there's evidence building that we're missing a whole population of people. Yeah, yeah, very good. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Uh, in case people want to find you on the social medias, should they do that? Uh, and are you are you on the X or anything else? That I, people I do have a handle. I should check it more. Helen Redmond's always on me and Joe Gitchell's do that more. But yeah, you all can reach out. I'll try to check it. If you don't get me there, it's not personal. LinkedIn, um, my Gmail's A Claycamp. Uh, my last name smell, spelled pretty weird at Gmail any of those, but please reach out. You know, I, I'm really looking forward to hopefully working with Casa more ways to do research, ways to amplify voices and even qualitative research. How do we get these stories of people that have switched and they feel empowered by it, you know, out there? Yeah. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you. This has been a great conversation. And uh, as you mentioned, I think before, we'll put links to some of the, the research that, that you've mentioned. Um, I don't want to give you a bunch of homework, but uh, if, <laughs> yeah. if, if, if things are uh, at your fingertips, uh, we'll definitely want to share links to things. Um, okay. And with that, I'm going to end the recording and we'll send it back to the maybe live people showing this recording on the YouTubes. So with that, thank you for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Bye. I would I would clap louder, but my hand hurts real bad. Uh, well done, first of all, to you. That was a great interview, and huge shout out to Annie. Um, there was just so many good points made along the way. Uh, obviously, the big focus on 
uh, our older generation um, and and how that just kind of gets out of focus. Like we we focus so heavily on youth and prevention. I mean, we talk about youth vaping and smoking rates regularly at nauseum on this show. Um, and even we don't give enough credence to to necessarily talking about our older generation enough. And I know I know we do still regularly, but uh, it's a it's a discussion that we can also have, uh, you know, even more regularly than we do. Uh, one of my big takeaways, just being me, was the whole conversation about pleasure, uh, which again is something we've talked about a lot here. But like that focus of pleasure in your older age, um, in your golden years, when maybe you're not able to be as active or go do all of these other things that once brought you pleasure, how are you seeking pleasure in your older age? And that, again, might be one of those reasons why people continue to smoke or why we see the rates in drug use that we do in older populations and things like that. And that got things that got gears turning in my head. Uh, so I thank you, the hamster in the wheel in my brain. Thanks you for that. Um, because that's just a, that's a really, that it's like a light bulb, uh, went off. Um, so I think that's, uh, thank you, Adrian, um, for my hand wound today, my razor blade through the hand today. Um, but yeah, seriously, great conversation. Huge shout out to you and, and Annie for that, uh, gave me a lot of things to think about you now, but also, um, gave everybody here in chat and everybody watching, the replay, lots of things to think about as well. And definitely, um, you know, with the, over the, the the years, we've seen uh, hashtags and things like that go across Twitter. Um, you know, uh, what was the hashtag that we saw? It was like the, the Golden Oldies Tour was a, a thing yeah, for there. a while where we discussed um, um, that was a that was a collection of testimonials that Lindsey Stroud uh, yep. spearheaded. Uh, it was the, the Golden Oldies Capital Tour, I think. Yeah. Um, and old farts vaping is something that's been around. Yeah, old so, farts vaping has been you around. You know, for a organically, while. there has been this effort to draw attention to old, the older generations, um, and and Gen X better get ready because we're there. Um, and uh, um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, there's obviously a need here for policymakers and researchers to pay attention uh, to older folks, this older population. And, um, you know, it, it's, it, you know, historically, it, it's older populations are, um, you know, I, I hate to say something like a burden on, on the healthcare system or, you know, in, in all of this, anything that we can do to provide accurate and honest information to everybody, honestly, but in particular, our aging population uh, to improve their lives and take care of themselves and still enjoy what they're doing. Uh, yeah. it, 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 it takes that, that financial burden off of them, off of their families, uh, and off of the system at large. Um, and, and so I, you know, it, it, it's impossible to talk about this without my brain going towards sort of the, you know, the, the business as usual conspiracy theories here that, sure. you know, there's a profit motive to keeping people sick, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm not in a position to point fingers at, at anyone in particular, but from a business perspective, it sort of makes sense to not uh, give everybody all of their information. And you can say that about just about any industry, honestly. Um, so um, yeah, I, it, it's, it's, it's a big conversation. It needs to be bigger and it needs to factor more heavily into the ways we assess the success or failure of policy. Um, 
and and again, you know, before I ramble on to oblivion here, uh, it, it, thanks to Annie for having that conversation with me and and um, support her work uh, as she goes forward. Uh, looking forward to to what she does in this field, and uh, certainly she's already done a lot. So. Um, uh, hope to have her back on in the future to talk about her ongoing work and and how all yeah. of this uh, is hopefully changing the conversation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that 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 stress uh, that you guys you guys not stress like oh, anxiety stress, but you you stressed or any stress that you know that that quantity of life is important. Extending our lives, um, you know, living longer is important. And, and like you you put an emphasis on how much we as a society have done and how much money and effort has gone into extending um, our lives. I mean, if you look back in the last hundred years, how much modern medicine has extended the human lifespan, which is fantastic. But that quality of life, you know, you, yeah, living longer is great, but if you're living longer, hooked up to machines, immobile, unable to do anything, experience anything, enjoy anything, you know, there, there's there's a value, there's a weight added to that value of, of quality and quantity. And you have to have both, right? Like quality of life is great. Quantity of life is great. But one without the other, that imbalance is 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 just, uh, you know, sure, I want to live to be 100, but I don't want to live to be 100 and, you know, be a rotten potato. Like I want to I want to live a long life and actually enjoy things, have pleasurable experiences along that way. Um, and I think that's, that's a really important part of this conversation as well. Um, and just the, the vital role that, you know, harm reduction strategies and, and products play in all of that for all of us. So yeah, just great, just great interview. Just fantastic. Gave me a lot to think about. Got a lot of light bulbs turned on and, and gears turning. So I appreciate um, you taking the time to do that. And Thank you, everybody here, for tuning in who stuck through the the hour that was the glorious Annie and Alex discussing, you know, old farts and vaping and whatnot. So thank you. Um, do you have anything else before we wrap this program up today that you wanted to to toss into the mix here? I don't. Just lots of thank yous. Uh, thank you for the folks in chat. Uh, thank you, Mark Sliss, for, again, your, your valuable input and perspective as a vape shop owner who persists. Uh, in, in helping your community. Um, I very much appreciate you. And I don't know that I get the opportunity to say that enough. So, uh, and of course, everybody else who's been participating in chat uh, and everybody on the replay, thanks for tuning in. Yeah. All right. I guess I'll, I guess I'll attempt the spiel. I've been really bad at the spiel this season. So uh, head over to kasa.org. Do it right now. You can leave the stream. Go. Shoo. Head over to kasa.org. Sign up today, become a member. It's absolutely free. We don't bombard you with a million emails every day. You get the emails you need when you need them about what you need to know uh, to stay involved, to be informed, uh, to fight this good fight. We are all CASA, not just everybody here on the screen, everybody in chat, everybody who's a member, everybody who participates. You have a voice, and I hope that you use it. And through CASA, we can do that collectively together. Together, you guys, we are CASA. Uh, and while you're there, if you haven't submitted a testimony about your journey, please do that. Share that. Your voice and your story matters. Um, while you're there, too, if you, you know, you want to throw money to the cause, do that. Money is great. Donations are always welcome. And another great way to do that, too, is to pick up some sweet swag. 
You can check out our merch shop. Thank you, Danielle Jones, for all the incredible designs that she has available to everybody. You get to be a walking billboard of tobacco harm reduction. Check it out. Head over to Casa. Uh, check out the Facebook groups if you're hip to Facebook. I'm not super hip to Facebook, but if you're hip to Facebook, uh, if you live anywhere in America as a citizen or just anywhere in America, we have a Facebook group. And that's, I guess that's the spiel. I'm real bad at the spiel this season, you guys. I don't know. I did I miss did anything? I think you did it. I, I don't know. Did you broadly cover, find us on the social medias where, you know. Oh, no, I did. We're on the social medias. There, I did the thing. Good job. <laughs> Kasa Media, everywhere. It's literally Kasa Media. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're, on all, or we're X, I guess. I still call yeah, it Twitter. It's still I Twitter. Refuse. I'm, I'm revolting against Elon Musk um we are there we're on the social medias check it out you guys uh follow us all over the place head over to soundcloud if you like audio versions uh soundcloud google we're on apple all the podcasts all the places you listen to the podcasters um you know audio versions available there as well yeah the weapons of mass disruption t-shirts super dope check it out um i think that's it you guys i think we're out of here it's just about it. I did want to make a programming note. So um, our next regularly scheduled CASA Live will be on the 21st of October. Um, but as I mentioned at uh, the, the beginning, uh, we're, we're hoping to get something into works to talk with some folks about this big vape docuseries. Uh, and so we may have something sooner. So again, that's where the, the social media has come in real handy. And, and maybe we can send out an email in advance. Uh, but looking forward to that conversation, hopefully we can get that done. And that may happen before the 21st. You said that premieres Wednesday, right? The premiere for the docu series on Netflix is Wednesday the 11th. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. I guess I got to pay Netflix. <laughs> All right, you guys. That's it, everybody. Thank you uh, one last time for being here, joining us, watching the replay, all the great stuff. Go out, be excellent to each other, and just as importantly, be excellent to yourselves. We will see you next time here on Casa Live.